It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, scandal, outcry and humble apologies by two big media personalities. Will media reform save Channel 10? And the new New York Times Australian operation has ruffled some feathers in the world of arts and culture. Joining me in the studio from Ad News is Arvin Hickman. Hi, Arvin. Hi, Olivia. From Media Diversity Australia, Isabel Lowe. Hi, Isabel. Hi. And Jenny Noyes from the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi, Jenny. Hello. How are you? Last Friday, ABC producer Beverly Wang published an unedited interview with ABC radio broadcaster and longtime media personality Red Simons. Parts of that interview had featured in an episode of Wang's podcast on race, racism and culture called It's Not a Race. The uncut interview, which goes for just under 20 minutes, is probably best described as a train wreck. Red Simons asks Wang a bunch of offensive and uncomfortable questions, including what's the deal with Asians, are they all the same, and are you yellow? The podcast was taken down a few hours after it was published, and Simons apologised on air on ABC Melbourne on Monday morning. But that didn't stop the massive backlash, both online on social media, unsurprisingly, and in the real world. Federal Labor MP Linda Burney said the interview was offensive and clearly not acceptable. The acting president of the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Board, Elizabeth Wing, also condemned the interview, describing it as disrespectful, insulting and denigrating. Isabel, you have recently founded an organisation that focuses on cultural and ethnic representation in news and current affairs media. Are you surprised by this unfolding of events? No, well, I am not at all surprised uh, by, you know, Red's kind of attitude towards the questioning of Beverly Wang. I, I remember saying it on social media. This is the kind of questioning that people of colour in journalism face every single day. So uh, I found the interview to be uh, quite offensive, but not surprising. Ethnic diversity at the ABC is still far from representative of Australia's population, but the workforce there is still more diverse than many of the commercial media organisations. If an incident like this was going to happen anywhere, Arvind, is it a shock that this would happen at the ABC? Uh, The first thing I want to say about your point um, on ethnic diversity at the ABC, I don't really see it with on-air talent. It may be the workforce is quite ethnically diverse, but when you actually look on television, um, there still lacks quite a bit of ethnic diversity. So, no, it's not a huge shock that it happened at the ABC. I just think it's really disappointing that it happened at all. Jenny, do you think that the opinions and perceptions spoken by Simons are commonly held by a large number of Australians? I don't, I'm not sure that he was making any specific opinion. Um, and I was quite confused by what point he was trying to make. My understanding of it, just by looking at and listening to what he was saying, was that he was probably trying to be funny. Uh, and maybe, if you're, you know, a generous reading would be that he was actually maybe trying to make a point by acting out the kind of racism that, or, you know, the kind of ignorant questions that people might ask. But yeah, in in doing so, he was furthering those kinds of stereotypes um, in a very unhelpful way. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to say whether, because I don't, I don't know if he was actually being genuine um, in his line of questioning. I think he was 
doing a very poor job of maybe doing some satire. I could be wrong on that, but uh, that's my impression. But, you know, I, I think that the reality is that these sorts of questions are asked of people in non-ironic or satirical ways. And so, you know, may, maybe Red Simons is not the right individual to be um, sort of repeating those in a way that's kind of unclear what point he's actually trying to make and it ends up you know making his guest uncomfortable and kind of taking away from what she's trying to talk about. Yes I would actually really agree with that it wasn't at all clear what point he was trying to make if any but it was definitely uncomfortable and offensive even though he maybe wasn't intending it that way and keeping that in mind was it wise for the ABC to take down the episode and essentially shut down the conversation Or should we perhaps keep talking about it and examine why what he said was offensive? I'm not sure what their rationale was. I'm not sure if it was a request that was made to take it down. Um, That might be the case. But, yeah, I mean, I I think it's difficult in these sorts of situations. If someone has caused offence, then maybe it's better to remove the offending article. The conversation is happening anyway, whether it's up or down. You know, I'm not sure if it was a PR move as such from by the ABC or more of a, this is disrespectful, so we should remove it and, you know, issue an apology. Um, I, I don't really think that that's the wrong thing to do as long as the, the conversation can still continue. I have to say just um, on, on that point that if, if someone had made a comment like that on ad news, um, I wouldn't run it purely for the fact that it, it has the potential to offend quite a large number of people. Even if, it, if the intent wasn't there, the fact is what he said was still offensive to a large proportion of people. Um, I think it's important that we don't necessarily form judgments of Red Simons. I don't know the guy personally. He may not be racist at all, and you, know, you can't really tell that by what he says, but just by virtue of the fact that what he says is unacceptable, socially unacceptable today, and it has the potential to offend, I think the ABC was right in in taking down um, those particular comments. I'm a bit torn by the decision, actually, because, I mean, part of journalism's mission is to uncover the uncomfortable truths about this world, right? So if this had been like a Four Corners investigation, for sure they would have kept it up. You know, they would have said, this is an example of systemic racism that's happening or whatever. But I understand that the ABC is also an organisation, a corporation, and if they produce any content that is offensive to its audience, then they have to take action. And I feel like the action that they did take was a bit disappointing. Uh, I don't think that Red adequately explained where he was coming from or what he was trying to do in that interview. Uh, He only said that this is not who he was and that he was very sorry about it. But I wish that he could go a bit deeper into Mm. his kind of line of thinking. Like, did you think that was going to be funny or was it satirical? And he just didn't really get into it. So I found that inadequate um, Mm. and a little bit insincere, to be honest. So I think that the ABC, in deciding to take it down and read apologising, they thought was an adequate course of action, which I found disappointing. Andrew Bolt said that he would, quote, love to join in the bashing of Red Simons, but that he couldn't because it was clear to him that Simons was just joking. What do you make of that argument, Arvind? Would it be okay if he was just being a clown, as Bolt said? Well, he's not exactly standing in front of an audience trying to deliver a a comedy sketch, is he? 
Um, it, 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 that wasn't that wasn't the intention. I mean, the fact that Andrew Bolt is on his side probably makes me slightly dubious. Actually, um, look. At the end of the day, he said something. Um, I don't entirely know the intent. All I know is that it had the potential to offend people. Um, the ABC is between a rock and a hard place. They've got a charter to abide by. I think they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't, um, personally. So they've taken it down. I agree that it could have been explored more and I agree that Red's apology was inadequate and it didn't come across as particularly sincere. So there is definitely um, an opportunity for him to come out and explain himself better. I mean, the fact that Andrew Bolt is coming in and explaining Red's intentions without him actually communicating himself where he was coming from is illustration enough of what was wrong with that response. Isabel, some people are calling for Simons to be fired. What do you think about that? I I don't know whether that is helpful, to be honest. I think that would just heighten uh, the kind of high political tensions and, you know, relationships that we have in discussing race. I, I do hope that... This will lead us into thinking and having a, you know, more honest conversation about what is passing as acceptable in public discourse in this day and age. I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed by the standards that we hold here in Australia. And sometimes it takes an outsider from overseas to kind of remind us what a media bubble we do live in. Mm. That, that's true, but by the same token, the fact that it has caused such a backlash, I guess that that in itself is a positive thing because people have found it offensive and they are calling it out. So I, I think there is a positive element to the fact that it is it has generated controversy and it has generated discussion and that people in general did find it offensive. Okay, so on that note, let's move on to another example of how people from outside the country can shine a light on the potentially dubious standards of public discourse here in Australia. Roxane Gay is a New York Times bestselling author and professor of English. She was recently in Australia for the Sydney Writers' Festival, and while she was here, she stopped by Mamma Mia for an interview with the website's founder, Mia Friedman, for an episode of her podcast. When Friedman published the podcast, she also published an article titled Why, for the first time, I have no photo from my interview with Roxane Gay. Friedman focused on Gay's request not to be photographed and described Gay's body in detail. She revealed the private requests made by Gay's publisher while organising the interview. Gay responded, describing the article and the podcast as cruel and humiliating. And again, the backlash was swift and severe. Jenny, you wrote a great piece on this incident. In your mind, how did Mia Friedman get it so wrong? There's, there's questions over whether Mia uh, set out deliberately to provoke people, which is something that she has definitely been known to do before, um, or whether she genuinely just was a bit clueless in this interview. And, you know, that's not for me to really say, but I do think that one of the major issues with her approach is that she uh, really focuses on her own story and and Roxanne Gay, instead of being the true focus of the interview, is almost um, becomes a prop in teaching Mia and uh, Mia's followers um, about you know how to be woke, a, an intersectional feminist, or someone who is no longer fat phobic. You know, it's the lessons that Roxanne is teaching them to make them better people, rather than looking at this as Roxanne's story that is Roxanne's to tell. So, you know, in that way, she she made use of 
information that Roxanne did not, you know, sanction her to air publicly. And she used it in a way that really focused on how different Roxanne is from the regular population and to make out that she, you know, obviously she was trying to say it in a way that um, was educating her audience on the difficulties that women like Roxanne face. But she did it in a way that really dehumanised um, her guest. Okay, so I've read at least 20 articles that were published about this incident. Many seemed to focus on everything that is wrong with Mia Friedman as a person rather than what she did and what she wrote. And certainly the fact that Friedman is white, slim and wealthy was mentioned in many of the articles. Arvind, do you think that that's fair? Oh, look, she's probably a bit of an easy target, to be fair. I honestly don't know the intent behind what she published. It did come across as a little bit narcissistic and it did deflect attention away from what Roxanne Gay was trying to say and she should have been the subject and the hero of the piece. So on that front, I think it's very disappointing. What surprised me, though, is is that she didn't actually think about how this might be perceived. I mean, here you've got um, someone who's run a very successful women's network, which is their term, um, pretty much um, making or, or highlighting things that, that would, would almost amount to body shaming. So I must admit I was a little bit surprised at the level of detail she went to which and, and, and the thought process behind it. And I, I think she owes probably her, her followers and, and the rest of us a, a slightly better explanation as to what she was thinking. And, you know, the fact that anyone who truly follows Roxanne and is a fan of her work and has read her books and read her writing, she's someone who reclaims the word fat And there's a lot of women out there who do the same thing, who see fat as, you know, that is how we want to describe ourselves. We don't want to use words like super morbidly obese. You know, it shouldn't be a word that you say on a podcast. But yes, so the fact that she used that and she made a real point of using, of saying, I don't want to say fat. I need to say this word that is so much more dehumanizing and makes the person that you're describing sound freakish and really highlights this message that a lot of fat people are sent, which is you're about to die. You're... And, and that's something that Roxanne has spoken about a lot. It's, it's really insensitive, but it also suggests that she hasn't actually taken on the message of the book. So it kind of brings into question what her motives were in, in doing that, because if she has read the book and if she is a big fan of Roxanne Gay, then she should know that, that using words like that are, are really against um, what she's about. She, it makes it sort of it makes Roxanne sound a bit like a medical condition, doesn't it? Rather than the human, so it completely dehumanises it. I, I was actually quite surprised that she, that she ran that, and yeah, I would like to know why. I mean, I think Mia Friedman is just one person, but she symbolises something that is wrong with Australian media today, which is there are very few people, um, you know, leading media figures with the kind of platform that Mia Friedman has. And for her to say that she is representing the views of all women, A, is very wrong, but also when she comes from a background of privilege and experience that she has bringing into it and treating Roxanne with this fascination uh, of someone of her background might kind of speak to, then I think that we have a definite problem. So... I think she symbolises or is representative more of a a bigger problem in Australian media now, which is that it's not diverse enough and Mia can't claim to represent the views of all Australian women and certainly not feminists. Yeah, and I also think um, just one other thing with that question, people focusing on Mia, what Mia's done rather than 
or, or, or Mia's past wrongs and that sort of and, – and what she represents. I think it's actually a valid point to uh, refer to someone's track record on this. And I do think that Mia Friedman does have a track record of um, causing offence to people and kind of doing a whoopsie, sorry about that, but let's all learn a lesson. But when you keep making these sorts of mistakes and, and it, it starts to seem a lot less – like a genuine error and maybe something more calculated. And when when you are someone who's in a position of power, it's your job to know what you're talking about and to if you're saying that you're educating the masses, then educate them and do it in a way that's actually sensitive rather than educating them on this strange foreign person who becomes basically an object of curiosity. Yes, let's talk more about this idea that it's important to call these people out because they have platforms which they use to reach large audiences. And in fact, they're almost selling their voice as a product. Helen Razor wrote an article titled Mia Friedman, Red Simons and the Cult of the Individual, in which she railed against the state of the modern media industry that trains media workers to churn out profitable content with little regards for ethics or legal responsibility and elevates the brave individual opinion because both of these are cheap to produce and easy to sell. Would you agree with that? that these two fiascos are really just a symptom of the modern media landscape? Uh, Look, I certainly think there's a lot of opinion and bluster in the media compared to what they probably used to be back in the back in the old days. Part, part of that is, is due to technology, you know, the fact that we have digital platforms that make it very easy to publish these things. So I certainly think that that is a valid reason um, why media companies want to do this more and more. Yes, it's probably cheap, but it's probably also an element of if we have really strong polarising opinions, then it gets clicks. I think we talk too much about the symptoms and not the causes. So if, like, how did we get here to this situation where Mia has made this faux pas? If there was just one producer in the room that had just said, I, I think that that is insensitive or, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable with this, perhaps this would never have come to pass. But here we are. And I think it speaks to the composition of Mia's editorial team as well. So we have to look at what are the systemic causes of what has led us here to this first place. Well, that's a great point. And in that same article, Razor also wrote, albeit in jest, that in the aftermath of these two incidents last week, she thought about deposing all media workers who are white, over 40, and or find themselves in the highest 20% of income distribution. Isabel, what do you reckon? Is that an idea you could support? I just want to open the doors to let more people in. So we'd all still have jobs, so it'd be fine. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Arvin Hickman, Isabel Lowe, and Jenny Noyes. Last week saw the announcement that Channel 10 was going into voluntary administration. Their channel is still on air, but its future is unclear. The announcement coincides with a debate in Parliament over a package of media reforms and shortly after 10's announcement, the Communications Minister, Mitch Fifield said that the collapse of 10 was a wake-up call for opponents of media reform. The government's proposed reforms include removing the restriction on holding commercial television licences that collectively reach more than 75% of the Australian population and repealing the so-called two-out-of-three rule that prevents someone from owning more than two of the three regulated forms of media in one commercial radio licence area. Those regulated forms of media are commercial radio, commercial TV and associated newspapers. 
Some have suggested that Channel 10's announcement was designed to force the reform package through the Senate, where it is currently stuck with opposition from Labor, the Greens and One Nation. This week, One Nation has given the government a lifeline, suggesting it might support the package with changes to the two out of three rule rather than scrapping it outright. They've suggested a two out of four or a three out of four rule that adds cable TV to the mix. While the government insists the reforms will safeguard the future of Australian media, others have condemned the package, claiming it will only further concentrate media ownership in Australia and will have a negative impact on media diversity. Arvind, are media ownership laws the reason that Channel 10 is in trouble? Uh, No, they're not. Um, But the media ownership laws at the moment and restrictions around media ownership laws could make it difficult for Channel 10 to come out of the current predicament. What's really driving Channel 10's situation are several factors. The first one is the fact they've made some really bad bets in the past on very expensive content deals in the US. So they now are straddled with about $150 million dollars Um, of debt um, for these US content deals that don't rate anywhere near as much as they used to. Now, they're going to struggle to get out of this um, unless they renegotiate terms. Um, Murdoch and Gordon, who are two of the biggest backers of Channel 10, have decided they've had enough of backing it. Um, Let's go for a voluntary administration and let the administrators come in and try and find another way out. Um, What media ownership laws can actually do is is, is a few things. Firstly, if they reduce the licence fees, TV licence fees, which they're planning to do, it will alleviate some of the debt that Channel 10 faces. But more importantly, it allows allow cross-media ownership. So you might get the likes of a News Corp, for example, who might buy a much larger controlling stake into Channel 10 and help um, pour some more money and, and help that network survive. Okay, let's talk about that idea of cross-media ownership because it's precisely this consolidation that people are worried about. Less voices, more Murdoch. And in arguing for these reforms, Communications Minister Fifield said that the greatest risk to diversity of voice isn't one media company owning too much space, it's too few media companies existing. What do you make of that argument? I think to a degree there is there is validity in that argument. And the reason why is... is What's, what's really affecting the media and its viability at the moment is the fact that most of the advertising dollars in the market are being hoovered up by two companies, Google and Facebook. Um, and at the moment, it's very difficult for the number of media players that we have to compete against these people. So really, a bit of consolidation in the market, I don't think it's a harmful thing. I think actually it could be quite a positive thing. But they need to relax ownership laws um, so that media companies can become stronger by consolidating rather than sort of rowing against the tide and and collapsing. So I I certainly believe the media reforms are necessary. The current media laws were drafted in the 90s, I think. They were pre-internet laws. They're no longer relevant. They don't even cover things like like digital media. So I certainly think a rethink of the laws are, are in order. But Arvind, would it really strengthen the media landscape or would it mostly strengthen companies like News Corp? Well, the reality is News Corp won't own everything. I mean, News Corp already owns quite a lot anyway. When you think about it, News Corp already circumvents some of these media ownership laws that they're trying to change. Like two out of three, for example, News Corp part owns Foxtel, um, Lachlan Murdoch owns Nova, it's a radio station, and News Corp has its print and digital business. So in reality, they already have their, their tentacles in so many different pies. So I think you know, some of these arguments about two out of three, well, they're dated arguments. They don't actually make sense in the current landscape. 
I mean, we're, I think we're talking about two things here. We're talking about diversity of voice and we're talking about diversity of ownership, you know. And I don't know as much about the laws as um, I mean. But, I, I mean, I just want to take a step back and say, think about why the Australian public or certainly media organisations are finding themselves uh, at such a pivotal point. It's in a period of disruption. And for me, the question I want to ask and think about is, who gets to tell Australian stories, right? We've got uh, overseas players that are coming in now, like BuzzFeed and the New York Times. And, you know, Australian politicians are recognising that this could be an assault on our local Australian media outlets. And so they want to try to combat that. But does that really affect the way that the average Australian is consuming its news? Does it matter who is delivering it to us, so to speak? Arvind, you mentioned cable TV, and that's one of the cards on the table in the government's negotiations with One Nation to get the package through the Senate. There's definitely going to be a bit of bargaining here, and considering what we know of Pauline Hanson's views about the ABC, it seems likely that one of her chips might be cuts to public broadcasting. Isabel, you've worked at the ABC. Do you think it could handle more cuts, and do you think that the government would actually agree to this? Cuts have been made to the ABC since the beginning of time. So the question should be not about how we, or I should say the ABC, continues to operate with a diminishing budget, but how to speak to its audience with the resources that they have. Uh, We've got digital organisations that are working with way less budgets. Broadcasters by nature have a huge overhead um, just with operations and uh, the labour force. So I I think that it forces the ABC to reconsider how it operates and to do it more efficiently. And I don't think that's actually a bad thing. It wouldn't be a bad thing, but I think Pauline Hanson is actually looking at this very much from a political perspective rather than the ABC needs to be cut. And that's what slightly concerns me. It's just Mm. the agenda behind her proposal. Yeah, exactly. And I I don't think that it would be a good look for the government. The, The Australian public does not like the ABC being cut, especially when it seems to be being cut for political purposes and that would be exactly what's happening here and not only is it for political purposes but it's political purposes that are Pauline Hanson's so you know like it's just it would not be a very good look um, for the government to be doing that. Free-to-air linear TV audiences continue to decline. Is it just a matter of time until all TV is consumed on demand? I do think the more that is online uh that's available for streaming particularly. Um, I think there are certain programs that really work as events that happen all at the same time and that's what free-to-air TV is really good for. But increasingly those audiences are actually going to iView to watch Q&A, you know, and then, and then going on Twitter and tweeting. And I think that's, you know, that tie-in with um, social media is where you really get um, the value of that sort of free-to-air television event. But because that is that those two are increasingly going online, um, it does kind of make you wonder how, like, is it just a matter of time? You know, people are busy. People want to watch their shows when they can watch them. And, and if the show isn't on when they're available, then they'll either miss it or they'll catch up on it at another time. So if that opportunity is there to kind of curate your own television watching, then people will, of course, do that. 
And I think the trend is very much that a lot of younger people in particular are moving towards on-demand television, um, SVODs like Netflix and catch-up TV. A lot of older people still like linear. I mean, that, that's often overlooked in these debates, um, probably because the people like us are relatively young and our, our consumer habits um, match younger generations. But there is still a very large percentage of Australians who like their linear television. So, yes, the, the trend is definitely there. It's a generational shift. Um, it'll probably take a number of years, but I think eventually over time what you will see is on-demand really becoming the primary source of how people access this content. I think Australia needs a comprehensive review into how uh, you know, news content is being consumed. They have extensive studies in the US about who is watching linear, who's watching on demand, and a breakdown of those communities as well. And we don't we don't have that kind of data. So it's kind of a bit difficult to argue for audience when you don't even know who they are. And finally, the new Australian bureau chief of the New York Times, Damien Cave, ruffled a few feathers over the weekend with an article he wrote about the state of the arts and culture down under. Titled The Fall and Rise of Australian Culture, Cave's article said that this is a country where the demand for culture is greater than the supply and asked, is Australia becoming more open to bold creative expression or is this country just as eager as always to cut down the tall poppies who stick their heads up and stand out? Ben Newts, the deputy editor of the Daily Review, took issue with the article and wrote a response suggesting that if Cave really wants to understand Australian culture, he should find and hire the best Australian writers and cultural critics. Newts said that Cave's call out to the audience to tell him their favourite examples of Australian culture was reductive and a bit strange, considering that Australia has one of the oldest living cultures in the world. Jenny, do you think that Newts' criticism of the New York Times is fair. Yes, I think it was fair. One of my biggest bugbears um, when it comes to people talking about Australian culture and whatever the Australian values or whatever it is that they say that we have is the tall poppy syndrome. I hate it. I really hate it. It's kind of like an excuse for any time that you actually want to criticise something, you, it ends up being, oh, it's just tall poppy syndrome. You know, even Mia Friedman, critics of her last week were accused of tall poppy syndrome. And it's like, well, Maybe we do actually need to criticise people who are who are in a position of power. But, you know, that said, I think I do agree with him that um, there's probably the demand outstrips the supply, but there are a whole lot of very complex reasons for that that come down to funding and a whole lot of other stuff. And I think a lot of people did really read that article in a very cringy way. It came across as a bit uh, Lonely Planet Guide to Sydney you know, it was a vivid festival. And, and you know, the idea that there's been a fall and a rise in Australian culture, it's like, what are you talking about? I, I actually don't know what you're talking about. Maybe you're just talking about the fall and rise in it in your own personal experience because you don't actually know what Australian culture is. Isabel, how do you rate the New York Times Australia coverage thus far? You know, I mentioned this before. I, I, I haven't read as much uh, on Damien's coverage. I didn't actually get to the end of that article, actually. But... Uh, I think that sometimes it requires an outsider to come in with fresh perspective and take a look from from that outside point of view to communicate to us what we should be defending. So, sure, we might have found Damien's analysis to be reductive and, and a little bit, you know, passé, and we get up in arms about that and we say, no, actually, we, we have one of the 
longest and oldest cultures in the world. And I think sometimes we need that outsider perspective to come so we know what we're fighting for. So I, I, I have enjoyed the New York Times coverage, I have to admit. That's it for us this week on Fourth Estate. Thank you to my guests, Arvin Hickman, Isabel Lowe and Jenny Noyes. Thank you for listening. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. If you like the show, please do leave us a review in your podcasting app.